0: But I think it was 2015's The Force Awakens, where JJ Abrams just looked at the formula and just put the turbocharger on it, and people went absolutely bonkers for that movie. That movie holds the distinction of being not only a 248 million dollar opening kind of movie in North America, but that was the first hundred million plus opener in December. Before that, no movie had even opened to over $100 million at that point in 2015. But this obliterated the record because that movie made that month. It wasn't like December couldn't generate a $100 million opening. But boy, The Force Awakens. I remember when the premiere happened and everyone was buzzing about that movie.
1: I mean, I remember when the trailer, the first spot trailer came out in 2014. The year before the movie came out, they put out this one-minute trailer. And I remember the first time seeing the Millennium Falcon go across that screen. And I just... I died a little bit inside from happiness like there was this childhood joy and I think that's what a lot of these franchises you know bring out in fans is is just this feeling of sentimentality and of just that spark when they first saw it and it just it's emotional it's you know I'm going to use my wallet to go see this because it brings out my inner child or it brings out that moment I first saw it and that memory.
0: Walter Garabedian here for my Many Screens Big Picture Podcast. Welcome to part two of a very expanded episode of my Many Screens Big Picture Podcast featuring Sarah Witten from CNBC. In episode one, we went through numbers 10 through 6, Jurassic Park, the DCEU, Middle Earth, Fast and Furious, and the X-Men franchise. Welcome to this episode where we will break down the top five movie franchises of all time. Enjoy. We're going to move into our top five. Do you want to tell us, Sarah, what our top five film franchise is?
1: I would. Um, It is Spider-Man. All right. Spider-Man, the seven films being the three Tobey Maguire, two um, Andrew Garfield, and two Tom Holland solo films is sort of what we connect as the Spider-Man franchise. And I know it's weird to break it apart from the MCU or break it apart from other things. Oh, I think also included Spider-Verse in here. Oh, that's correct. eight films. But the idea being that it's one character and that there were different production groups making the films. So we put them together to be like, okay, Spider-Man as a character, as a franchise, $6.3 billion.
0: Wow. That's just Spider-Man.
1: Just Spider-Man.
0: It's really interesting when the uh, Tobey Maguire, the first Spider-Man came out on May 3rd of 02 to kick off that summer. That was the biggest opening weekend of all time in North America at that time with 114844116 so 114.8 million dollar opening weekend for Spider-Man that said to the world these movies can make a lot of money and they'll open huge there was so much excitement around that movie uh and I'll just never forget that day because that was the biggest opening weekend in North America at that point
1: oh yeah i mean Spider-Man was my first comic book so when there was a Spider-Man movie, like I was there opening day. I was 12 and I was like, here's my money. <laughs> like, here's my babysitting money. I want to see this movie. I
0: love Spider-Man because I love high school movies, whether it be Fast Times at Ridgemont High or Super Bad or Spider-Man in a way is a, is a high school movie in a sense because we have such a young character in Peter Parker who's been portrayed by... Uh, many different actors and all I think had put their stamp on it. I think Tobey Maguire brought a real vulnerability to it. And Kirsten Dunst was a perfect Mary Jane. And, and it was just really a cool movie. I don't think pe- if you think back to that day when that film opened, it was a huge deal. We've kind of become jaded in terms of all oh, these big superhero movies open, they do big business, but that was a huge deal. I'll, I'll never forget when that first film opened.
1: Oh yeah. And I think Spider-Man's like the perfect gateway into superheroes if, if you're kind of new to superheroes because it's a pretty easy story to, to latch onto. okay boy gets bitten by a radioactive spider gets spider powers it's like and then things happen and he wants to save his neighborhood it's like okay great that is not complicated you do not have to go into the deep lore of like what planet did he come from and how did he get his powers it's like okay boy bitten by spider boy tries to save the people he loves great um, and it's fun, and he's quippy, and he shoots webs, and it's got action, it's got the comedy. I know with the Toby Maguire movies, they kind of aged him up a little bit, and then when we got to the other two, they aged him down again to kind of be <laughs> more in line with the comics. But um, I think, as you said, each Spider-Man has put their stamp on the character and made them unique. I mean, I love Tom Holland as the
0: He's so good, 16
1: right? 16-year-old Spider-Man who doesn't really know what he's doing and he's trying to, you know, help out as he can. He's learning so much. He wants to be like Tony, and I think they did a great job integrating him into the MCU,
0: and he's so starstruck by the other <laughs> yeah uh, characters, yeah. but and, and it's really cool, and it's funny too because you, when we talk about a character who's in his teens, then that's the origin story, right? How do you do an origin story on Spider-Man? What do you do? Go back to when he's a baby? I don't know because because most of these characters, they may flash back to when they're younger, but they're generally older characters, and by older, I don't mean like really old, but older than a teenager. And so it's really cool that this comes from from that, that point of view of somebody really young, just starting. I mean, it'd be cool to see where Spider-Man is when he's 60 and what, you know, what he's doing. Uh, but I think it's a really great franchise. I think, again, we've talked about that. We just talked about this with Ryan Reynolds, The casting is key uh, and it really does change how you perceive the character. But it's interesting you might've thought originally that nobody else could play Spider-Man than Toby Maguire, but then other actors played the Spider-Man character and did quite well. I don't know why that is because I can't see that happening with Deadpool or even Logan. Uh, there's just, even though, I don't know if that would happen again, but uh, <laughs> given the, the story, but you know what I'm saying? There are, there are certain, for
1: uh, sure, for sure.
0: that kind of disallow other actors to, play them or or?
1: yeah and i think now's a good time to point out that like if we had extended our list number 11 would be batman and batman has had multiple actors and all of them have taken their you know different mark with it and different style with it or tone i mean and i think one of the reasons we put spider-man on here as a franchise is is because of those takes because it's such a prominent character that it be kind of okay, yeah, technically they don't all happen in the same universe at the same time. It's not chronological, but it's still a franchise in its own right. And I, with Batman, I mean, it's 4.9 billion. It's just below Jurassic Park.
0: Almost made the list.
1: Almost, so close. But I mean, you had great performances there and and great storytelling and different storytelling.
0: And I think Christian Bale just went, went and I think the, the real turning point I think people kind of said there won't be any more Batman movies and then comes along Christopher Nolan. And of course, Heath Ledger's performances Joker, which makes it even more astounding. You would have, I mean, look, what we just said about Ryan Reynolds and Robert Downey jr. You would think that nobody else could have played the Joker, but then Joaquin Phoenix comes along and just absolutely nails it. So I think it really, we need to broaden our our minds that others can do it. If you have the acting chops and the and the right creative team, but I don't know replacing uh, Ryan Reynolds or Robert Downey Jr. in those roles. I don't I don't know. But speaking of which, take us to number four. Talk about a, a, another example. Another of, example of multiple actors.
1: Yeah. So number four is James Bond, and that's six point eight billion dollars at the global box office over the course of what fifty years?
0: Yeah. Yeah, the first one came out uh, like two years after I was born, Sarah. Much as I hate to admit it.
1: <laughs> hey, I have Jurassic Park two years after I was born. You have the first James Bond movie.
0: <laughs> there you go. See, only thirty years difference. But uh, <laughs> let's not uh, keep going on that. Let's let's switch it up here. But if if you did adjust for inflation, because Doctor No came out in 1962, I mean, we would be talking probably in the six billion range for the Bond franchise um, adjusted in just North America, mm. by the way. So it's a huge franchise, much beloved. Let's talk a little bit about James Bond, just incredible.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's the reason we included Spider-Man as a franchise, because James Bond is a franchise. I mean, they call them, before they title them, James Bond 23 and James Bond 24. For M, you know MGM and Sony, these... Movies are all part of the same universe, even if they're not connected, it's James Bond, like, and everybody knows who James Bond is, what that world is like. And even though a different guy is playing him, it doesn't matter. They're all part of the same saga of James Bond. It's like each one is like a different book.
0: That's true. I think, and so many actors have played the Bond role and people have been arguing for years, who's the best Bond, who's the worst Bond and all that. But there are certain tropes and uh, themes. It's almost like there's a playbook for Bond. If you're going to make a movie, you got to have a cool car, cool gadgets. You know, there's various things that we all have come to expect. They've already started switching that up a little bit, changing some of the characterizations are from a bygone era. You watch some of those earlier films the way women are treated sometimes and they're just a product of their age. So bringing Bond into the modern era, particularly with Casino Royale, where you had a script that really showed very strong female characters and didn't just put them on the sidelines. I thought was really cool. And Ava Green was so good in that movie. I mean, all the female characters in the 2006 Casino Royale, which was the first appearance of Daniel Craig. Let's talk about the controversy over the casting of Daniel Craig. How interesting was that?
1: I mean, you look back and you go, why were we, why was anybody upset about this? You know, right. how, how could you possibly not look at Daniel Craig and not see James Bond? So I, I think a lot of, you know, casting complaints before you see them unless there's like a very very good reason they should not cast. you know like some sort of blunder they made in the press or you know statements they've made that they shouldn't have made like it you know i felt that way about gal gadot when she was cast as wonder woman i went i have no clue who she is but like right. she came in and it was like whoa okay that's wonder woman and so when daniel craig it was like oh who who's that Ooh, okay and he comes in you're like oh that's james bond
0: and he was the blonde bond, remember? And I'm thinking, wasn't Roger Moore kind of blonde? He wasn't, you know, he didn't look like Sean Connery. But I mean, for me growing up when I did, Sean Connery's still my my guy. That's my bond. But Daniel Craig is more true as, to the books, he's a scrapper. Uh, oh, and the other rap on Daniel Craig is that he couldn't drive a manual. <laughs> Car, I'm like, wow, you're just looking for anything to beat this guy up. And remember, you Daniel possibly learn how to
1: drive a stick what? shift.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, the newer Aston Martins are paddle shift, they're not manual, anyway. But what a franchise! I mean, this to me, this has to be the longest running contiguous franchise it's
1: probably close up there in terms of movie franchises.
0: Yeah in terms of movie franchise I can't, I mean look to to look at how relevant Bond has remained and also this under the stewardship of uh the broccoli's uh Albert Broccoli and also hit you know all the, the whole fan but starting with, with Albert Broccoli and then Eon Productions all the creatives on that they've really shepherded this franchise and this character, through some highs and lows. I mean, some of these movies, you go watch them now. Some of them don't hold up, even though they're still really fun. And arguments for days over who's the best Bond. But nonetheless, we have another Bond movie that we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for. No Time to Die, which... Let's talk about how that was really – was that the first film that moved due to the – that
1: first It was one of the film. first, if not the first. I'm trying to remember. It was in the grouping with like A Quiet Place and Peter Rabbit and Mulan was up there. I think it was one of the – if not the first, it was definitely in the first three that pushed. I mean it's such an important movie to MGM in particular. I mean it's their big golden goose and they need it to play in theaters or they need someone to buy it for a lot of money. And I don't know if streaming services are willing to pay that much for it. I mean, would the last one make close to a billion dollars? Yeah. So it's like, if they do well at the box office. People love them. People want to see the action in the theater they want to hear the explosions they want to feel the aston martin going (laughs) like you know it's a very visceral experience when you go to see a bond movie so i understand why they keep pushing it i think it's frustrating for fans because you know we we want to see it but i'd rather
0: be a frustrated fan and wait for the big screen appearance of bond you know when that's you know we talk about certain franchises where There's uh, at the beginning of the movie, you know, when when you hear that James Bond theme come up and he turns and points at the at the audience and shoots the gun, the blood drips, you know, through the barrel of the gun. That's goosebump inducing. And there's another franchise we'll get to in a in a minute that has that sort of thing that comes up that audiences expect. And the goosebump factor goes up exponentially with the size of the screen but going back to james bond for a second i think no time to die moving from it was a april release and then it moved to november and by the way little trivia bite uh, out of the last 10 bond movies seven opened in november so november has been sort of the spiritual home of most of the bond movies in the modern era
1: i mean it was an interesting thing it was april november April and then October. And it was like, (laughs) what about November again? Let's keep going.
0: (laughs) November has been very lucky for the bond franchise in the modern era. So can't wait for no time to die. I'm, I'm just saying, I want to see it on the big screen for sure. No doubt in my mind. So we're going to now move. What are we on Sarah? Number number three,
1: three. we're coming to it.
0: Glad you're keeping track. So the Harry Mm -hmm. Potter franchise, including Fantastic Beasts collectively worldwide, 9.2 billion. I remember there was a time when, without the Fantastic Beasts movie, Harry Potter was considered unadjusted the biggest movie franchise at one point with over $7 billion but later uh, supplanted by an, another franchise. I mean, I can't
1: possibly imagine what those two other franchises are. I have no idea. I'm What still franchises trying to pick could out. possibly have made that much money, Paul? But $9.2 billion, I, I the first film, we
0: literally watched this cast grow up before our eyes. If you watch the 2001 Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone or Philosopher's Stone, depending on where you live, uh, in the world... What a knockout of a movie. $90 million opening weekend in mid-November of 01. That first film earned almost a billion dollars, $974 million at the worldwide box office.
1: I mean, listen, I grew up in the sweet spot of Harry Potter, you know? Yeah. So it's no surprise to me that this film did as well as it did, that the franchise has done as well as it has, that it's become more than just a film franchise, that it has theme parks that the merchandise still sells even though, you know, a new movie hasn't come out in several years or at least a new movie tied to the original books. I mean, we're on to a series that is now talking about something that was mentioned in the books that we don't have source material for. So, I mean, it's a phenomenon and that's all you can say about it is it captured a generation and it's capturing a new generation and it's just got these universal themes and universal imagination that, yeah. Of course, it's making this much
0: money. (laughs) It's incredible. And I think, too, it was one of the, I believe, I don't know if it happened before The Matrix did this, but basically when they split Deathly Hallows into two parts. So they went with their traditional, you know, with that November release. And then we didn't have to wait that long. We went from November and then we got another Harry Potter movie in mid-July of 2011. So we went from November of 2010 with. Deathly Hallows part one. And then we had Deathly Hallows part two and combined those two movies made over $2 billion worldwide. Those two movies, how novel was that to split that up? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I think it was one of those things where it needed to be done because book seven is, is a thick book. (laughs) A lot happens. And I think a lot of fans had, I wouldn't call it mad. They weren't mad, but like in the earlier novels, a lot of things were stripped out to Streamline the story that, you know, a lot of us maybe wanted in there, some nuanced stuff, but it really, they would have been four hour movies each. So when it got to book seven, they were like, either we strip out a lot of content, or we break it into two. And obviously, having two movies does double your box office. And you saw it, you know, Twilight did it later. Divergent, which was going to do it, and then that series didn't continue. So it was one of those things where, like, it made sense content-wise and then spurred other folks. Uh, Hunger Games did it as well. So I think for some it's like, okay, yes, they did it for the content, and for some I think they felt it was a little bit of a cash grab. But I think for the Harry Potter series... It needed to happen because that book it it, it really is split into on what happens plot wise.
0: And I like the quickness with which they got the. I assume they filmed them concurrently. Yeah, they
1: would have filmed them back to back, and then they were sort of like, "We're not going to wait. <laughs> let you wait two years. You can have them within six months of each other." It's which
0: like- was really a quite. Uh, I mean, at that time, it was kind of a shocking thing. Like, wow, how? But I mean, sh- shooting concurrently certainly helps with that ability. But, wow, what a what a great business and strategic decision to do that. And I think the fans, if they had had to wait a year or two between Hallows 1 and Hallows 2, they would have been pissed. But I think they did it really well. And then the fact that the Fantastic Beasts movie, uh, the first one in 2016, earned 800, $812 million worldwide. The second one, six fifty two. million. So just collectively, just an incredible franchise. And casting – I think we, we've been talking a lot about casting. That if they had miscast somehow, Hermione and Ron Weasley, and of course Harry Potter. I'm trying to remember their names. Uh, <laughs> there was some struggle there. I hope I'm getting this right.
1: For you, James Bond and the Cars and Fast and Furious as the Cars is is like you, and I'm sort of like great. Yeah, it's a stick shift, awesome. Whereas like Harry Potter for me is like I could tell you things that like. <laughs> See,
0: I like that. See, you, you roll up, your eyes, and I'm gonna let you talk about the cast. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, the casting is great. You're casting, you know, kids between the ages of 10 and 12 to play an 11 year old, hoping like, okay, yeah, they nailed it at 11, but what happens at 14? Like, all right, like, and they they really did a great job of of getting these kids in, and the kids had talent, and then they coached them through as they got older, and they didn't have any major scandals from the kids. Throughout the years, that did anything. So they lucked out there, but they also had this huge back cast of like incredible British actors. Oh my God, the actors. So, in, in addition to finding these three unknown kids, you also have like this smorgasbord of just incredible. <laughs> I was like, what word do I use? Smorgasbord. <laughs> like, it's almost, you know,
0: it's a horn o plenty of plenty yeah, exactly. acting <laughs> talent. Uh, you're right. And it, it raised them to a different level. And generally, all of them were well-reviewed. All the original Harry Potter movies.
1: Yes. I think Fantastic Beasts, because it wasn't Harry Potter in the sense of Harry, you know, Harry wasn't part of it. It's This is way before Harry Potter. There wasn't any source material. So I think people kind of went in and had certain expectations that either weren't met or didn't go the way They had the fan fiction in their head. So I think the new Fantastic Beast series has its own complications that could be a separate podcast.
0: That's true. And, you know, there's that halo effect of the original films, I think, made the Fantastic Beasts movie a must-see for fans, but maybe not the passion there that when you look at the numbers, but still $800 million for uh, the first, you know, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the first film, Really impressive considering that in essence, I don't know if you would consider Fantastic Beasts a spin-off or an origin story, but whatever you consider it, pretty solid. Any other franchise would be thrilled to have movies that earn that much money?
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it is part of the Harry Potter lore. It's what led to Voldemort, like, you know, it's the pre-Voldemort era, you know? Like, it's right before he gets started. He's not really in it, but like, know that like, you know the inner workings a bit because it's it's hinted at in the novel and there have been subsequent things that have written on like the Pottermore websites. So you have an idea, but I, I think a lot of people went into it kind of trying to figure out what was going to happen.
0: Well, and you know, when you set the bar as high as the first Harry Potter movies, uh, Fantastic Beasts had certainly a lot to live up to. But we're going to move on to our number two franchise. Now, I think, Sarah, this might be a tough one for you because I don't think you really understand or like this franchise?
1: No, I've I've actually never seen any of these movies.
0: So I'm going to really try and help you through this, but the Star Wars, nothing but Star Wars franchise, which I know I'm being facetious. I know you love this. Why don't you talk about Star Wars? I'll let you go.
1: I mean, what can I say about Star Wars? I mean, (laughs) if there's ever to have a bias for a journalist, here we are. Here we go. (laughs) I mean... $10.2 $10.2 billion since 1977 is... Unadjusted. Unadjusted is pretty darn good, I'd say. I mean, of course, it, it when it came out in 1977, it captured a fan base, and it kept capturing a fan base.
0: Sarah, I have to interrupt you. What was the opening weekend on the first Star Wars? Can I cheat? Yeah, I'm <laughs> cheating.
1: <I'm laughs> right. oh. I, like, I wish I knew this off the top of my head. Oh, my God, was it really only... Um, million dollars
0: 1.5 million because it was a limited uh uh, release and then it went wider just to show you how it was only in a handful of theaters i remember i saw this movie you're gonna be very jealous at the abco westwood i believe it was stood in one of those lines saw it first run
1: i feel like i've told you this like many times but it's one of the movies that i am sad i was not alive for when it came out yeah i mean my parents showed it to me when i was like seven And we watched it at home, which was fine. I mean, I fell in love with it then, but it was like, that's one of those movies. Like, I wish I could go back in time. That's what I would do with my time machine is I would go back to 1977 and I would get into the first showing of that movie.
0: And those first three movies, Star Wars, A New Hope, which they didn't really brand it as that. And then episode five, The Empire Strikes Back. And it really, considering how confusing for the layperson all this could have been at the time. And then, so you start with episode four, then go to five, then go to six, and then they went back to episode one, but everybody kept along, kept going along for that Star Wars ride. Such great movies. Is this perhaps the most iconic arguably movie franchise, true franchise in history?
1: Hmm. I mean, we all know how I feel about Star Wars. (laughs) I mean, I, I think it's one of those that it hit at the right time. It had the right creator. It had the right script, it had the right actors. It was one of those things that just, you know, nobody had seen a movie like this before. And I think if you introduce it to some folks now, they kind of go, oh, well, I don't get what the big deal is. Like, it's okay. It's a sci-fi movie. I've seen Avatar. Like, <laughs> right. But look at it for what it was when it came out in 1977, how impressive those effects were, how impressive the model work was. I mean, it started an entire generation of science fiction movie, of technology we use to make non-science fiction movies. So I think... Those three movies, the original trilogy, really kind of sparked the imagination, not just of the fan base, but of people creating film. And now the people who that, you know, were inspired by that are making movies that, you know, and some of them have come back to Star Wars.
0: That's really interesting, too, because I know that George Lucas, his inspiration, I think, was the Buck Rogers serials from the past and this episodic. Space age type of content, but nobody really done it in this way where it was so accessible to all audiences. I mean, these were PG rated, very fun space operas. Some people call them, but it's more of just a an adventure in the style of those old serials from the past. And certainly, two thousand one A Space Odyssey, which I saw when I was a kid, certainly didn't hit this young kid's mind in the same way that a Star Wars would. I had no idea what was going on. That was more of an art house film. And a brilliant one. And Kubrick is a genius. And I'm sure George Lucas looked back at 2001 for a lot of inspiration. But this has just taken on a life of its own. I mean, again, a very long running franchise. If you had said back in 1977 when the first movie came out that in twenty in the 2020s Star Wars would still be a huge brand franchise, cultural phenomenon, and talk about merchandising and the like, it's just incredible.
1: Well, I think what's so interesting is that Star Wars had its moment in the 70s and 80s and then sort of went away for almost two decades. And then they were like, hey, let's explore those chapters that we hinted about. And it sort of brought in the folks that had seen it when it first came out. It brought in their children and it brought in those of us that had seen it when we were, you know, seven. (laughs) And I mean, when I was eight years old and they told me there was going to be more Star Wars, I, I think I cried. I was yeah. happy. <laughs> and So, you know, say what you will about the prequels, you know, whether you love them or hate them, like for a generation, that is their Star Wars. I mean, I grew up with Phantom Menace being my first theatrical Star Wars. So I hold this like I go back and yeah, OK, maybe it's not the perfect movie, but I, it holds the sentimental value that when they now say hey we're doing the three movies afterwards you kind of go oh i feel emotional about that i feel nostalgic about that i will go watch that (laughs) so it carries over over so many generations
0: i remember when the phantom menace came out and that was a huge deal that was 1999 it seems like it wasn't that long ago but that's a long time ago so you have phantom menace attack of the clones revenge of the sith i would say Those movies were well-liked but not loved in the way of the early ones. Could be wrong on that. I think in retrospect, they were actually really good movies. But I think it was 2015's The Force Awakens where J.J. Abrams just looked at the formula and just put the turbocharger on it and people went absolutely bonkers for that movie. That movie holds the distinction of being not only a $248 million opening kind of movie in north america but that was the first 100 million plus opener in december before that no movie had even opened to over 100 million dollars at that point in 2015 but this obliterated the record because that movie made that month it wasn't like december couldn't generate a 100 million dollar opening but boy the force awakens I remember when the premiere happened and everyone was buzzing about that movie.
1: I mean, I remember when the trailer, the first spot trailer came out in 2014, a year before the movie came out, they put out this one minute trailer. And I remember the first time seeing the Millennium Falcon go across that screen. And I just, I (laughs) died a little bit inside from happiness. Like there was this childhood joy. And I think that's what a lot of these franchises, you know, bring out in fans is, is just this feeling of sentimentality and of, just that spark when they first saw it. And it just, it's emotional. It's, you know, I'm going to use my wallet to go see this because it brings out my inner child or it brings out that moment I first saw it and that memory. So when those, you know, movies came out, say what you will, whether you like them or not, like that first movie, you were going in the door because you liked Star Wars.
0: Right. And the original Star Wars... I heard stories where when George Lucas was shooting it over in England, that they were all laughing at him like, this isn't going to be anything. What a joke. And boy, w- w- was everyone wrong on that. So Star Wars, number two on our list, 10.2 billion worldwide. Again, unadjusted. These are unfathomable numbers. And if you think
1: 10.2 is a big number, just you wait.
0: <laughs> I know. If you think 10.2... Is it, now, uh, I think I'm correct in saying, though, that—just a little distinction here, Sarah—that for the Star Wars franchise, every single one has the words Star Wars in their title. Just just saying.
1: I do believe so as well, including—oh, um, I think Rogue One is Rogue One, a Star Wars story, so instead of it being at the front. and. The same with a Han Solo, Han Solo, a Star Wars story. No, you know you're uh, uh, But you're right. Star Wars is in all of the titles.
0: Okay, so moving on to a franchise, a universe, a series. An epic. It's everything. The Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's go. I'll let you say the number, the global collective number of the films.
1: It is 22.59 billion, which is just unfathomable. Like, it's just... I mean, I know it's 23 films, and obviously that's, I think, besides James Bond, because James Bond, I think, is, what, 25? Yeah. That is the most amount of films in one of the franchises we've talked about. So clearly, they, they have done quite well for themselves.
0: It's unreal. And for the past, I'd have to count, but what happened was suddenly it was a Marvel movie. Not suddenly, but it happened over time that a Marvel movie would kick off every summer movie season and then as is appropriate to Marvel, they start bending the calendar to their will and end game opened at the end of April. It was always that the summer movie season started uh, the first Friday in May and they're like no it doesn't it starts whenever. A Marvel movie opens, that's when the summer starts.
1: Oh, it starts in February now. I mean, Black Panther proved that you could put a movie pretty much anywhere. That's right. And if people want to see it, they'll go see it. The MCU is a really fascinating franchise. If you want to call it a franchise, if you want to call it a brand, whatever you want to call it, it is 23 movies that all intersect. And now there are TV shows. Like, this is so, this is colossal. I mean, it is an undertaking from Marvel and Disney. The likes we haven't seen before. And yes, I am a fan. I will say that right up front, but the numbers tell the story. And to go from a B-side hero like Iron Man, 2008, Incredible Hulk revamp, 2008, and where we are now, I mean, that's just a testament to good writing and fan service.
0: (laughs) It it is quite astounding too, because if you look within all these movies, you you have Iron Man, Incredible Hulk, you have Ant-Man, you have Thor, Captain America, Spider-Man. I mean,
1: the fact that they made the Guardians of the Galaxy, and it did that well at the box office. I mean, who had heard of those characters besides hardcore fans? And now they are household names.
0: That's a really good point, because I remember that movie was pushed to the end of summer to kind of hedge a little bit. So the first Guardians of the Galaxy came out August 1st of 2014, and there was a lot of hand-wringing over that one. Oh, who's going to go see this? But the brand, I would argue, of of the MCU and just Marvel in general, and the quality of the films, by and large, has been really top-notch. I mean, you could argue about that all day, but it really set that movie up to do well. It opened with $94 million in August, August, we used to call the dog days, but Marvel again comes in and changes the dynamics and the perception of a given month in terms of its box office potential. And just a fun movie, different. The soundtrack was great. Really unusual casting, right?
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, number one, it's a movie where you've got a gun-toting raccoon, a sentient tree, a green warrior woman a man that doesn't understand metaphors and Chris Pratt. Like <laughs> you pitch that and people will look at you sideways and yet it works. And I think the thing with the MCU is it's so malleable and they've taken on so many different genres to fit the characters and to fit the story that like, no one of them is the same sort of like setup. Okay. Next. Okay. Next. Okay. Next. It's, one of them's a spy movie. One of them's a heist movie. One of them is a romance. One of them is, you know. Comedy. Musical. Comedy. I mean, we'll get to the musical, I'm sure. <laughs> but like, you know, well,
0: Guardians kind of is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> at times, yeah. I think with them is they haven't stuck to one concrete, we have to do it this way or else it doesn't work. They're able to kind of say, okay, well, the Guardians are this, weird sort of ragtag group. They're kind of criminals, kind of good guys. So let's do a heist movie for them. And then, okay, Black Widow and Captain America fighting the Winter Soldier. That's going to be more of a spy thriller. And then Thor Ragnarok, whatever you categorize that as. (laughs) That's what it is. And then they bring these characters together into movies where you've got like 20 main characters in something like Infinity War or Endgame. And it still works. Each character kind of gets their spotlight, gets a moment, and it doesn't really feel like anyone's been completely left behind.
0: And, you know, you talked about malleable. I think that there's no greater example of that than Thor Ragnarok, where the previous Thor movies were well-received, but not like people weren't like over the moon about them. And then they just switched it up, brought in Taika Waititi to direct and bring his sensibility to it, which on paper, again, would be like, The guy who created Flight, or was one of the creators of Flight of the Concords, the series about the Dracula. (laughs) What we do in the shadows. Yeah, what What we we do in the shadows, sorry. And that's what you're talking about, that thinking outside of the box. And even Black Panther had elements of James Bond in there with the gadgets and all this stuff. Like, what an incredible film that was, and you're right. That brought uh, February to the forefront of, of blockbuster months. You could spend hours talking about the MCU.
1: I mean, I really could. I really could. I I think you just, you look at it just from they had a plan at the beginning and they said, okay, for phase one, at the end of phase one, we want to get these six main characters together. Cool. And then they just took it piecemeal and they went, okay, phase two, at the end of phase two, this is where we want to be. Okay, phase three, we now have Infinity Stones cool, this is where we're getting at the end of here. And then now we just wait to find out what Phase 4 has in store for us, you know? I think they've been really smart about who they've hired, about diverting from the comics where they need to, taking inspiration from the comics. It's not a beat-for-beat, okay, you know, because they didn't have X-Men, they had to introduce Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in a different way, and now they have the X-Men, so how is that going to work? Like, they've been very creative in... Yes, it is an homage to the comics, and some of it is straight from there, but they've been adaptable and making it modern. It's not all, you know, what happened in the 1960s. And they've been able to elevate it, I think, in a way. And fans have really responded to it.
0: They're so connected that you can't stop watching them, like can't opt out. Fans can't opt out. And it's incredible because worldwide, seven of the 23 have earned over a billion dollars, unadjusted again. And two over two billion, and Endgame finally. Remember, there was the the race to see what is the top grossing movie.
1: I was queued in every Sunday morning for for weeks, months, on end.
0: A game of inches at the end for Endgame to surpass Avatar as the top grossing film of all time with two point seven nine eight billion dollars worldwide Its
1: opening was over a billion dollars because they timed it with us and china like what they had done is they had taken the opening weekend domestically and put it the same opening weekend as a lot of their international particularly china which is a really robust box office and they made one point what 1.2 billion dollars in that opening weekend like yeah we were over here doing math i'm like okay maybe it'll make like 350 domestically
0: well i mean think about that for a minute The opening weekend, three hundred and fifty-seven point one million dollars in North America. That is a great total global gross for any movie. For just one movie. For for one one movie, five months. I mean, that was like because I've been doing box office for almost thirty years. I I thought I I was gonna lose it. Like that was like. I remember
1: calling you in the week before that movie came out. Yeah. Okay, I've done the math, and basically. We look at how many theaters there are going to be. We look at the average okay. of what these theaters do. It cannot make more than $280 million. It is not possible. Right. And then it made almost three hundred and sixty because they did 24-hour showings and because they blocked out more theaters and they did more to make it possible. So it's like we went in with this math of like, okay, if the average is 65000 per theater and... That's on an opening weekend, and there are 5,000 theaters. <laughs> 280 is the number. And then it was like normal
0: you know. people math, not Marvel math.
1: Oh, yeah, sorry. That was like back of the napkin conspiracy theory journalism math.
0: Incredible because Marvel expanded the universe of theaters to include 24 hour showings and thus were able to achieve that $357 million opening weekend in North America. Just absolutely incredible. No wonder this is the number one franchise at the top of our list.
1: I think DC can achieve this. You know, they seem like they're starting to find their perch. They tried to kind of replicate how the Avengers were going, but I think once they start really, you know, having fun with some of their more obscure characters or, you know, revamping how they do things, I think we're going to see some really interesting movies come from them. So I think, yeah, the EU is number nine I think that in a few years, they can have more hits. They just need to kind of find their identity and find their their way. You know, as we said, Batman is number 11 with $4.9 billion. You know, Keaton, Clooney, Bale, you you have this whole list of incredible Batman. Kilmer. Kilmer, Kilmer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And then Transformers is another runner up. Transformers, uh,
1: $4.86 billion. Just, I mean, a lot of that towards the end was made internationally, especially when they started filming those internationally. They really captured an audience over there.
0: That's true. And they changed the marketing or the content of uh, of at least one of the movies uh, for the China market uh, in order to boost the box office. So Transformers, uh, another big franchise, and Pirates of the Caribbean is a, is a runner-up here with about $4.5 billion across the five films. So I mean, just really incredible. You know what I haven't done yet, Sarah? I haven't added up the total worldwide for all these, or at least for the top 10. We're going to do that later. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, definitely make sure that you don't repeat some of the Spider-Man movies. in the. Uh... Right. We'll figure that out. I think people would be interested to know. I mean, quick math. That's a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> don't get
0: so technical here. Come
1: on. But it's a lot. That's a high
0: number there. And remember, too, this does not include anything beyond theatrical releases
1: right. Oh this does not include home box office. This is not adjusted for inflation. I, it's a fun way just to look at what really has been touchstones in, you know, the collective pop culture. And, you know, is not saying that, you know, Marvel is better than DC or James Bond is better than Fast and Furious. It's just straight. Okay, what did people pay to go see these movies when they were in theaters and really shows you the power of theaters and why, you know, during this pandemic, we haven't had them. And why so many studios are waiting for them to come back and not everything is coming to streaming because your streaming movies are not going to make a billion dollars.
0: Right. They
1: can make a billion dollars at the box office.
0: I couldn't have said it better. I think this is a great place to wrap up. I gave you the last words, Sarah Witten, CNBC entertainment reporter, and one of the best, if not the best in the business. Oh man. Sarah, You're fantastic. I really appreciate you being on many screens. Big picture today. Thank you so much. This was really fun. We've been going for over an hour. I think we may have to. This was supposed
1: to be a tiny, like a 30-minute podcast.
0: What did I say at the top of this? This is going to be a box office bite. Yeah, yeah. Box
1: Box office office bite turns into a mouthful. This is a box office big gulp. Okay. (laughs) And the sad thing is that we tried to keep our comments to a minimum per, but you know, the two of us could go for three hours. So
0: I know. I agree. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for being here. That's your top ten movie franchises ranked by box office not by quality but because we don't want to get people all mad at us but thank you so much sarah what a great episode top 10 top ranking movie franchises worldwide thank you for being here
1: always happy to be here